This episode of The Tour is brought to you by City Winery. Indulge your passion for live music, fine dining, and the taste of wine country, all in their intimate venues in New York City, Chicago, Boston, Atlanta, Nashville, and Washington, D.C. Visit citywinery.com. Sometimes musicians learn hard lessons, even when they're standing just outside the spotlight. I beat myself up for a long time for having taken that back seat kind of stance and stood behind all of it and watched it. But you know, now that I'm older, I recognize and realize that I needed that. And I did exactly what I needed to do. Hi, and welcome to the tour. I'm your host, Ted Canova. Amy Helm is the first to tell you she's been a student all her life. The daughter of famous musicians, Amy's lessons started early, in the back seat with her mom, Libby Titus, and then on stage with her dad, Levon Helm. Amy took what she learned and formed the group Ola Bell with musicians she calls the best teachers. That's high praise considering her roots. Together, they released four acclaimed albums. Sometimes the student gets to pay back the teacher, as Amy did in 2007, by co-producing, performing, and singing on her dad's first album in 25 years, Dirt Farmer, which won a Grammy. lessons are learned even in the toughest of times. And after the death of her dad, Levon, in 2012, Amy finally stepped out front and released her first solo album, Didn't It Rain? Today, Helm is still learning, but she's also teaching. A single mom who makes school runs and lets her kids play DJ in the car Amy is putting the finishing touches on her second album with a new producer, Joe Henry. I sat down with Helm in a sacred spot inside the barn at Levon Helm Studios in Woodstock, New York. She let us in on some terrifying musical lessons, the struggle to grieve privately for her dad while the public was holding tributes, and the challenges and rewards of covering her parents' hit songs. Amy, tell us where we're sitting. Well, we're sitting in the barn. This was the, is still the home of the Midnight Ramble and was my father's recording studio and home. And he built this place to be a live music venue. We're sitting here on the area that is the stage with a grand piano to our right and his drum kit, which is uh, stays set up and ready to play to our left. You walk in and you still get this sense of wonderment I do. Yes, I do. And I think the barn is just simply one of those places that has a lot of magic in it. It's a special spot. Let's start kind of at the beginning. Did you know when you were growing up that there was this special musical flair in your family, or did you just feel that it was normal? No, I thought it was Rick Danko's band. To me, Rick Danko was a star, and Stage Fright was his hit, and that was the only song I knew. The only song I really had a lot of interest in watching being performed, and my dad played drums in Rick's band. That was my perspective on it at age five or six. And I read that you were backstage when the last waltz was being filmed, a little daycare that kept the kids 
backstage. Yeah. Well, I didn't want to come out because the, it was such a scene going on in the room they had set up for the kids. You know, there was a lot of great stuff going on, great candy and toys and games and all the kind of stuff that you're more interested in. I mean, it sounds like a birthday party. Well, exactly. It was like a rock and roll style birthday party. So, you know, when you're five or six or seven and you are given the choice, you're going to go with the rock and roll birthday party. Of course, now in my 40s, I'd love to go back in time and like, you know, actually sit in the front row of all those iconic shows that I was at. But I think that, you know, when you're a kid, you're a kid. And you know, whether your parent is a drummer or an electrician, you just know what you know. And you have two kids now, ages nine and six. How do you pass along the ordinariness of you being a great musician or the legacy that you come out of, not just with your dad, but with your mom too? Their father, my ex-husband, who's still a very good friend of mine, we're raising the boys to know where they come from. And their dad is an incredible saxophone player and piano uh, player and songwriter. And he played with Greg Allman's band for many years, and he continues to play and pick up gigs here and there. But Jay is a real working man's musician. Jay grew up learning on the gig. There aren't many folks left. I think that my generation and maybe a little bit younger are kind of the last ones to know what it is to get schooled on a gig from a much older jazz player if you're playing jazz or an older blues guy. And their dad really is that. And I admire that so much about him. He has an incredible ethical compass in terms of this being a job and what it means and how you approach work and who you work with and how you, you know, what your work ethic is. And it really reminds me of my father too. Both Jay and I are carrying on that legacy from my father, which was that he was a working musician. He was a rock star at points in his life, but he was also bankrupt and in total obscurity at other points in his life. So I try to pass that along to them and they see me and their dad going out and doing gigs and working and trying to make the rent like any working musician. So hopefully they're getting a lot of that. You grew up as almost a backseat generation young girl, oh, yeah. right? You picked yeah. up music in the backseat as yeah. your mom, maybe your dad was yeah. driving and yeah. playing some things and you wanted to be Carol King. Yeah, I love that. The backseat. That's it. You know, my kids are backseat kids though. I mean, I let them DJ a lot more than I do because they're into it and they have fun doing that. And I'm letting them really listen to a lot of the pop music that we listen to. And I'll let them DJ all that stuff. Harry Styles' new record is on heavy rotation. We've been listening to a lot of Tom Petty. They're learning a lot of stuff from the backseat. Isn't that how all of us learn the music? <laughs> well, for me, it was AM radio in the backseat. Oh, you, nice. you were That's F- even deeper. <laughs> I don't want to say that you were shy. But you were uh, 20 feet from stardom. You were taking a little bit of the back of the stage when you started to sing. And for one of the gigs that you were on stage, your microphone wasn't on. And it was maybe your dad's way of... It was the piano. He let me do that. He didn't care. He just wanted me to learn the chords, (laughs) which is what I did. But, you know, we were playing tiny bars at the time. And and I was practicing and... uh, It's taken me a long time to get there. And I've also learned, I was just talking about this with with a younger singer, a young girl in her 20s. And I was saying to her, and I was reminding myself as I shared this with her, that I beat myself up for a long time for having taken that back seat kind of stance and stood behind all of it and watched it. But you know, now that I'm older, I recognize and realize that I needed that And I did exactly what I needed to do. 
So to trust yourself is to trust yourself. And, and I look back at it now and I needed, I needed a decade of sitting in my living room and listening over and over and over again to the songs that were compelling me at the time to study Mahalia Jackson, to study Aretha Franklin, to study Jimi Hendrix and whatever else I was listening to, thousands of, upon thousands of songs. I needed that and I'm very happy. I think it's all kind of, I think that if you have a deep love and drive for music and nothing else quite satisfies you, you'll know that at a very young age. And then if you just keep serving that, you will get to where you need to go and it will all unfold in the right time. Were you intimidated by your mom and dad? Is that one reason growing up maybe you didn't want to step out because they were so public? I I imagine it must have been. I've thought about that a lot and I think about that a lot now that I'm a mom and you have that you gain that amazing 2020 vision with age and time and motherhood too, I think. It must have been in there and it surely must have been affecting some of that for me but I think also I just didn't I just kind of took what was in front of me and did the next thing like in high school I sang with the jazz ensemble that had a huge effect on me I had an exquisite teacher who was Duke Ellington's bass player and composer and teacher named Dr. Aaron Bell and then the next thing was my college band you know, and the guys that I played with all through high school and college, and I learned how to sing Little Wing <laughs> and Hey Joe, that was the next thing. So I don't know. It was more that at that time, when I was in my 20s, it didn't ever occur to me to want to try to forge a career or become a star or be on the radio. It just, I was kind of following in step with my peers and we all just wanted to get better at what we were playing. We wanted to be better players and better singers. So I don't know if I can attribute all of it to insecurity. I think also there's just a very real thing going on, which was I was just in the stream, in the kind of slipstream of what was around me, which was Peter Levin and Chris Shiani and Ethan Piper and myself and all the players. We all went to high school. We tried to get better and better every gig. And well, let's talk about high school because did you cut class or just leave class and go smoke and listen to REM? Oh, well, you've done your research. Did I talk about smoking? I didn't just listen to REM. I sang REM. Well, chain smoking. Those were the days. Uh, I quit smoking a long time ago. But I couldn't cut class. My high school was very proper and very strict. I didn't have the luxury of cutting class. I'd have gotten kicked out, but I did take all my breaks across the street smoking cigarettes <laughs> and learning harmony. And we had quite a choir. We had quite a choir. The place was called Under the Stairs, was where everybody went to smoke across the street. And we had a serious group of singers down there. And man, we had a lot of fun. So much of your biography it's hard for your dad, Levon, not to be part of it. But your mom, Libby Titus, has maybe even a song that went even more through the roof that both she sang and obviously Bonnie Raitt and Linda Ronstadt. Love has no pride when I call out your name. What impact has your mom had on singing that we don't hear about as much as your dad? No one to blame. 
when she was younger and growing up as a teenager in Woodstock, she was exposed to and loved all of the beautiful early folk stuff and folk singing and folk songs. She loved Laura Nero. She loved all of that. So she really rounded out. I, I always was drawn to gospel music and soul music and R&B as singers go. I remember Aretha Franklin and Otis Redding just reaching through the speakers and grabbing my whole being and wanting, I wanted to be that. I couldn't sound like them, but it's where I wanted, where my intention was going. We listened to a lot of Dolly Parton and a lot of Laura Nero, and we listened to a great singer who is a great soul singer, but also had a very clear kind of bell-like thing named Brenda Russell. She's a great singer from the 70s. And we listened to a lot of Carole King and Joni Mitchell. She gave me blue she rounded out a lot of my backseat education, turning me on to the most, some of the most important female artists that you need to know about. And Love Has No Pride, I wonder, would you ever cover it? I've tried to, yes. You know, I've been thinking about trying again. It's a, it's a hard song to sing. It's not easy. The melody's challenging. And I did it once. I had a nice arrangement of it. I changed the chorus, the meter of it and the phrasing of it a little bit so you could hitch a harmony to it. And I think I'm going to try it again. Wow, good for you. <laughs> I wasn't sure if it's just some things you just leave best alone and not try to cover it. <laughs> You're try Especially it. if I'm going to try. I'm going to try that melody again. If I could just... Uh, wrap my voice around it a little bit stronger. I did it once on a gig and I thought I got to that chorus and I got through it, but I was thinking, oh my God, why did I try to sing this song? It's too hard to sing this song, man. What about the weight? I've heard you sing it and boy, the joy comes over your face when you get into it. And the folks who have been here at the barn really get into it. Is that another song that's just best left on its own and not to be recovered by you? I used to think that, but on, and I don't do the wait at usually at gigs when I'm not home, but when I'm here, I do it. And I've started to end every show because it felt like such a cool thing. It was such a thing about the ramble. And I remember being out with a group, Olabel, that I used to play with. And I remember we were out on the road. We were missing a lot of the rambles. We were touring a lot at that point. I got on the phone with a friend of ours, someone who had been here at the ramble, and they said, guess what song they did last night? We said, what? We were all in the van. They said, the wait. I remember taking the phone to the side and going, you guys, they did the wait at the ramble. And we were just, oh man, I couldn't believe we missed it. We were all laughing about it and saying, wow. And when we came back from that tour and we finally made it up to a ramble, to hear him do the wait was staggering. He hadn't sang that that material in a long time for a lot of different reasons that were very personal to him and for whatever reason he had gotten okay with it and to hear him sing that song in this room that was pretty magical so I think about that a lot and how that was kind of his way of making peace with things that were hard for him and it was him accepting what he had rebuilt here at the Midnight Ramble and the the, um, the songbook that he created here and the albums that he cut here, then he was okay to do the wait. But then after he passed, you performed in 2012 at the Americana Awards, The Wait, and you look to your left and there's Teresa Williams and Larry Campbell and you look to your right and it's Emmylou Harris and John Hyatt 
and Jim Lauderdale. What was that moment like for you to be on stage? Oh, and let's not forget Bonnie Raitt on guitar. She then takes over the vocals. Catch a cannonball, take me on down the line. I've never heard that verse sung that way <laughs> that Bonnie did, but she's Bonnie, so, you know, she always ups the game every damn time. She's so great. Wow. And that moment, is it something that just as a fan we thought was stunning, or, or did you feel it too? That was hard for me that night. I mean, obviously, I'm such a huge fan of all the people that you just mentioned. So, of course, there's always the reverence. But I was too raw at that point to even take that part of it in. That was just a few months after he had died. The public aspect of his passing was an unusual and you know there's no way to get prepared for that and I wasn't expecting that and there's a funny thing to that having to hold that grief and be public with it and hold it and not you know give yourself the space you need to feel what you feel and not have to you know worry about crying in front of people and all of that it's an it's a very unusual thing that piece of it and I didn't have Although I grew up, you know, with a dad and stepfathers who were well-known, that was unfamiliar territory for me. And um, I have to say his fans really held me up through that. The first few times I had to sing after he passed away, it was the it was the group of closer fans who had been to so many rambles that came out to a few shows that, like, there was just an energetic thing that I felt very held and very um, supported. We lost another dear friend this year. About the Americana Awards, it was just a few months since he had passed, and the last time I had been at the Ryman was with him doing the Midnight Ramble. And those a lot of those people, like Jim Lauderdale and Buddy Miller and Emmy Lou, Emmy especially, an older friend of my dad's, and Buddy and Jim and all those guys, and Bonnie, of course, were people that he loved and admired so much. And I know that it was such a mutual respect between all of them. And Booker T was on piano, was on organ, and that was hard that night. That was that was that was hard for me. Actually, the hardest part for me that night was walking into the sound check and Teresa called me at the hotel. She said, "I'm warning you when you come over here, it's intense. It's going to hit you because we hadn't done anything, you know. He passed away and I spent the summer with my kids were, t- were babies at the po- at that time and you know how it is when you lose a family member you just kind of go internal and you go inside yourself and you kind of cope and you take it a day at a time and this was one of the first times I had been out and about amongst his musical connections and friends and family so she warned me and I got there to the sound check and I walked in and I saw Jim and Whew, it was rough. I just, that was, that was rough for me, but you get through it. And uh, that was a special night, beautiful tribute. Well, thanks for sharing that. I appreciate yeah. that. As children, we're protective of our family. And with everything that is talked about with the band and the breakup, were you protective of your dad? Did you try to help navigate anything? Or was that dad's business and he didn't want any input on softening over the years you mean in terms of his bitterness about the band no I just tried to keep the focus I tried to do what he tried to do at his best which was keep the focus on music that's what gave him the the power and the uh, conviction to rebuild himself after throat cancer and build a band here and create the midnight rambles and redefine himself which I think is hard a hard thing to do in this industry and hard for musicians who've reached a certain point in their career. And 
I think that's why so many people identify with him and are inspired by him because he really came up from the ashes. He was a working man's musician. We kept the focus on the on the rambles and on getting better at playing and singing. And you had the whole horizon in front of you. You've gone from a couple of different groups. You're almost a serial musician going from group to group. I've been so lucky with that. So Ola Bell, there are a lot of songs on those four albums. Yeah, we made some good records. Soon I'll be done with the trouble of this world. Trouble of this world, trouble of this world. I love those guys. We had a good band and we had an incredible time. We really grew up together as musicians. All of us were, were thrown into something that was new and terrifying and exhilarating. And we got good. We worked our asses off and we got good at it. We got great at harmony singing. Was this that steel? We got great at arrangements, and what an incredible learning curve that was. I still hold every single member of that band as some of the greatest teachers I've ever had. I think the music's incredible, and I think the harmonies are incredible, and you guys dig deep down to have, what, a new bent on gospel music? It started like that. And you were playing, performing, singing, and then you stepped out, and one of the songs that you were a lead vocalist on, You're Gonna Miss Me? That's an Ann Peebles tune. My ex-husband, Jay Collins, picked that song out for me to do. He also picked out good news for me to do at the Rambles. Some musicians are just really great at finding a gem of a tune, and he picked both those songs out for me. Said my baby's coming home tomorrow. Ain't that good news? Yeah, ain't that news? Let's fast forward to your first solo album, Didn't It Rain? You had doubts, and this was your coming out. Been gone for so long. stronger voice come out. Yeah, well, you know, time and gigs under your belt, hopefully you get stronger. Having to go out and sing lead, I had about a year's worth of gigs that I had already done in that capacity, and that helped me give a better performance. Honestly, I'm 46 years old. I'll listen to stuff, a live show from two years ago, and I already think that I sing it stronger. I, I imagine all of us feel that way. Come rescue me. You've been awfully fortunate. T-Bone Burnett, first album. Larry Campbell, second album. And now as we fast forward, you've got new music with Joe Henry, yeah. who challenges people. He's, he's known for challenging people. So tell me what it was like to go into the studio in Los Angeles rather than doing it here on the East Coast and work with Joe. It was incredible. I was terrified, not because of Joe Henry, but because of my own, because it was a completely, you know, unknown situation. I had a little bit of familiarity with with a couple of the players, but other than that, I really didn't know anybody and I didn't know the studio. I, it was in a town I don't know very well, you know, Los Angeles, different studio, different players, and a totally different batch of songs, mostly 
songs by other writers and, and cover songs that I had never tried before. So it was a, a real leap of faith, but Joe just has, I'm such a fan of his production and what he does with singers as well as his own work that I was very trusting. I wanted so much to work with him and completely take the trip and let it be a Joe Henry production. So I did that and he has a way of making everybody feel very comfortable and very respected. And it was a blast. We had a great time. In the couple of years between your first album and this next untitled one that will come out sometime in 2018, was something stirring in you to say, I need to get out of Woodstock? I'm not going to go to Nashville to record. I'm not going to go to Portland, Oregon to record. I'm going to go to L.A. I mean, was there some geographical thing that you wanted a different sound? Well, yes. I had originally, I wanted to go to Mexico. I don't know. I had this fantasy that, you know, it seems that I, I, I follow in my father's footsteps that the more broke I seem to get, the more wild my ideas become. Like, you know, let's take a band of 10 people and go to Mexico, to the desert in a beautiful place with an incredible house that we rent and let's record an album so you know these are my money grows on trees kind of fantasies but I did want to get out of Woodstock I had kind of been pushing for that not just because sometimes you have to take a little left turn and and experience you know a reflection of what you're trying to do artistically in another environment so the LA thing wasn't specific but certainly wanting to do something in a different landscape if we can go just a little deeper on that process because were you worried that your next album that you wanted to do was going to just be same old same old were you trying to stretch yourself were you thinking commercially like I need a different sound no I don't think that I did do that (laughs) which is a good thing I'm still in such the beginning stages of kind of exploring myself as a singer and as a songwriter and as a performer that maybe I wasn't far enough down the road to put those kind of pressures on myself maybe I'll do that on the next record I just wanted to try something different and I wasn't sure what it was going to be once I knew that Joe was going to do the record and and I was going to have the opportunity to do that. I just surrendered. Let's make a Joe Henry record. How cool. Really cool. We're looking forward to that. So your first solo gig in that place in Albany, New York with 15 or 20 people? You've really done your research. Yes. I opened for Chadwick Stokes. I thought I might die. I haven't been so nervous. It was absolutely, totally terrifying as if I had never done it before. Oh, yeah. I sat on a stool. You couldn't. I couldn't have stood up and sang a song (laughs) if you had paid me. Yeah, it was scary. It was just so different having to stand up there and be in that role. I just had never done it. Not since college, I guess. How does someone at your level work on becoming a better songwriter? Just try to connect with other songwriters that are uh, about 80 million thousand quadrillion times better than you at it. I mean, an interview I read, they said that they had about 80 really mediocre songs and about 20 really bad ones, and then four great songs emerged. I'm just writing my 80 mediocre songs right now, hoping to get to the good stuff. Amy Helm, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for the interview. When you drive away from Levon Helm Studios, you feel you're leaving a spiritual place in musical history. Two turns and you're facing a mountain range of trees, and you realize you've been holding your breath and reflecting since you left. When you finally exhale, you get a sense Amy Helm is just getting started. 
Until her next album is finished, she'll be collaborating some more, including with fellow songbird Skylark, an all-female group she put together with what she calls badass players. Well, that does it for this episode of the tour. I hope you liked our conversation. I invite you to share it with your friends and followers and write a review on iTunes. It'll help more people find us. Thanks for listening to the tour. This episode has been brought to you by City Winery. Indulge your passion for live music, fine dining, and the taste of wine country, all in their intimate venues in New York City, Chicago, Boston, Atlanta, Nashville, and Washington, D.C. Visit citywinery.com. I'm your host, Ted Canova. Remember, music makes it all better. See you next time. Excuse me.